Good morning. This is one of many days when I'm really proud and grateful to be a part of such a vibrant church family. Yesterday there was a whole army of folks out taking care of our grounds here. And there was another army at Shank School, the local school that we have adopted, doing the same thing there. There was a friendship luncheon for the women going on in here. There was parent dedication uh, yesterday afternoon. There was premarital counseling session going on. And then there was the blessing of the bikes. For several years now, our worship team has provided the music for this event at the Harley-Davidson dealership down near the bell line of 12 and 18. And yesterday there were some 200 bikes there and close to 400, I would imagine, bikers there. And they sang and the chaplain of the group uh, spoke and led a service there, and before it was all done, we learned that there were 14 that were captured by grace yesterday. And so it's wonderful to be a part uh, of a ministry like this. Let's commit our morning to the Lord. Word of God, speak. Would you pour down like rain, washing our eyes to see your majesty? to be still and know that you're in this place. Word of God, speak. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. Several weeks ago, Pastor Mark started a series on the book of Ephesians that he is entitled Identity and Mission. The first half of the book, the first three chapters, are all about our identity. How that long before we were ever born, before we were ever gleam in our parents' eyes, before we ever existed, God looked down and chose us, adopted us into his family, redeemed us, liberated us, forgave us all our sin. That's who we are in Christ Jesus. That's our identity. Then beginning in chapter 4, which he started a couple of weeks ago, we move from our identity to our mission. Identity and mission on the banners. Focusing on the idea that we are called to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. And so living out that life that we learned about in the first three chapters is what the second three chapters is all about. A part of that walking uh, uh, according to our calling is to walk together in unity as a body and in growing maturity as a body. And now this morning to be walking in identity, or excuse me, in integrity, which I'm defining for the purposes of our time walking in continuity with our conversion to Christ and bringing that continuity into line with our conduct in Christ. Bringing our conversion to Christ into alignment with our conduct uh, in Christ. When we were converted, when we were captured by grace, 
there was something far more radical going on than we almost feel comfortable in, in recognizing. And Paul wanted this audience to understand that, to appreciate that from which they had been called. And so he tells them in verse 17 of chapter 4, page 828, um, where he picks up this idea of walking integrity. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. You get the idea that there's some authority behind this statement for Christians. That you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. When he says no longer live, we are to assume this is the way they had lived before. They, like us, were Gentiles. They, like us, were strangers from the covenant of God with Israel. They, like us, were unbelievers. And he tells them that they must no longer walk as they used to. Walking in the futility of their thinking. Why would he bring up their thinking? Remember, this is the culture that has produced the greatest philosophers that the world has ever known. This is the culture that prided itself on its intellect. This was the culture whose worldview recognized that there were two parts to a human being. There was the mind, the reason, and there was the flesh, the substance. The mind, the reason, was that which connected us with the gods. That's what made us divine. The flesh, the substance, tethered us here to the earth. It was something to be gotten rid of. So they prided themselves in their mind, in their thinking. And Paul says their thinking was futile. Oh, there was nobody better than they of working out philosophical issues. They could form their syllogisms and their paradigms. They could solve their problems. But in Paul's mind, they did not know God. And so all of their thinking is distorted, and being distorted, it's futile. It has no lasting satisfaction. It's empty. It's pointless. Edward Gibbon, the historian, wrote of this generation, the philosopher, to the philosophers, all religions were equally false. To the common folks, all religions were equally true. And to the rulers, all religions were equally useful. Not much has changed uh, since then, has it? And then he goes on. Not only is it futile, he goes on to say, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. If you follow his reasoning... The deepest need is that hardened heart. Now this is true. God says as he looks down upon humanity apart from his grace in Christ Jesus, he sees hardened hearts. Now, lest we speak judgmentally of those out there, this is you and me. This is me apart from God's grace. My heart 
is like stone before God. There's nothing about him that's attractive to me, nothing about him that is that I find myself drawn to. If I am drawn to him, it's only by his grace. We love him because he first, first loved us. Pharaoh had a hard heart and would not listen. The Pharisees around Jesus, the religious leaders around Jesus, in their hardness of heart, were more concerned about the violation of the Sabbath than they were of the healing of the man with the withered hand. And Mark's gospel says, Jesus looked on them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. That's me, apart from God's grace. And then he says... They're not only hard, they're ignorant. (laughs) That's kind of an insult. But their ignorance is not because they're unintelligent. These were very intelligent folks. Their ignorance wasn't lack of evidence. In fact, no external factors were a part of this. Their ignorance is in them. Their ignorance comes from suppressing what they know to be true in unrighteousness, as Paul phrases it in Romans chapter 1. And it's not a temporary condition. It's blameworthy because they have chosen to harden, to resist, to uh, uh, suppress that which they know is true. This is what God sees when he looks at my heart apart from grace. And from that ignorance there comes a darkness. A darkness that swallows up my understanding, as John Piper says, and keeps me from seeing the glory of the gospel and the excellency of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm separated then from the only life that is truly and eternally life. How would Jesus phrase it? He phrases it like this. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world and men loved darkness. Loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And then the thinking spills over into their behavior in verse 19. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. The rub over and over again of resistance has produced a callous. A callousness against God. Those with leprosy have lost feeling in their extremities and they end up destroying their extremities because they feel no pain. They indulge every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. They actively pursue it, and it's progressive, and it's addictive, and yet it's fully and free, they're fully and freely responsible because they have given themselves over to it. It's not contrary to any consent. That's the divine surgeon speaking about 
our disease. That's what God sees. And Paul knows that until we understand that, until we appreciate that, until we see what we are by our fallen nature, any healing that we seek will be superficial at best. All the external cleanups that we do will consistently fail. And so with that negative background, notice what he says about them, now believers in Christ. Verse 20, You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Learn Christ. That was the way Paul phrased their conversion. They learned Christ. The divine surgeon had diagnosed their disease and the diagnosis or the cure was a person, was himself. The world by wisdom did not know God, but now they have come by grace to learn Christ. To learn him, to hear him. You know, sometimes when the word of God is taught, whether it be in a place like this or in your small group or someplace, you know, you sense in your heart, you're hearing not just a human teacher. You're hearing the voice of Jesus. Jesus would phrase it this way. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and now is when the dead, that is spiritually dead, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. We hear him. We are taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Not just in the words that he says, but in his entire person. He is not just a teacher. He is not just the teacher. He is the truth. My sheep, listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They've heard the teaching. What is the teaching? Verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. You put off the old self. That which, about which we have just read in verses 17 through 19. That old mindset. We put that off. Because it's being corrupted by its deceitful desires. We're deceived as to what really is truly desirable. So we put it off. It's like an extreme makeover in a sense. We make over houses that are earmarked for demolition. We make over a wardrobe. We make over our bodies uh, to try to look different or to look better. But Paul isn't even talking about an extreme makeover. He's talking about an entirely new creation. 
Notice, to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. He would tell the Corinthian believers, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. This isn't just a refined paganism. This isn't just becoming nicer people. We can't create ourselves. We can't uh, execute our own birth. No one's ever been able to do that. It's the work of God. And yet it's a work in which we fully concur because by His grace, we're the ones that put off and we're the ones that put on. Ken Hughes at the college church talks about our task is not to weave the garment that we wear, but to wear it. It's God who does the weaving and we who do the wearing. Putting this on is just like making it visible in our attitudes, in our actions, in our behavior. For we are created in Christ Jesus to good works. So we move from thinking to Actions, specific ways in which we must bring into alignment uh, and into continuity our conversion to Christ and our conduct in Him. I've called these things relationship busters because the various things that Paul is going now to go on to list are things that have in common many things, but at least this one, they all break relationships. Lying and Anger and stealing and rotten talk and bitterness. See, I, w- I want to say, well, why, if this is Paul's goal in the first place, why doesn't he go just there? If we were to go just there in the flesh and just try to be nicer people, one of the things that happens, we become stuffy people, we become starchy people, we become stiff people. Because this is all just outward Pharisaism. It's just outward legalism. It's outward conformity. When God is looking for behavior that springs from a transformed mind in our thinking. So that, for instance, in that transformed mind, one of the things that we do is to put off falsehood put off falsehood and speak truthfully everyone to his neighbor, with his neighbor, actually, for we are all members of his body. You must, each of you, put off falsehood. A part of this new person that God is creating in us is one that's truthful. So putting off falsehood, the reason for it isn't just because it's it's generally a prudent thing to do. But it's because the God who chose us, the God who adopted us, the God who redeemed us, the God who forgave us, hates it. That's the word the Bible uses. Proverbs chapter 6. Six things the Lord hates, yea, the seventh is abomination to him. The second thing in the list, haughty eyes is first, Second thing is a lying tongue because it's so contrary to the character of the God who cannot lie. Put off falsehood and speak truth. 
Why? Because we have learned Christ, who is truth. The reason Paul gives in this passage is for we are all members of one body. Think about Paul's analogy with the body. He uses it in 1 Corinthians about the human body. Think some of the consequences of members of the human body lying to each other. You're sitting down, you're going to have a wonderful pot roast dinner. You can just kind of smell that pot roast right about now, can't you? You stick the fork into that really tender pot roast that's just about to melt in your mouth. And your mind lies to your hand about where your mouth is. And you end up sticking that fork in your eye. Ouch! Or you're walking down a busy urban street. And your mind lies to your foot about where the curb is. And you stumble and fall into the street, into the path of an oncoming bus. The body is built on relationship, and relationship is built on trust, and trust is built on truth. Every man, each one, quit speaking falsehood. Speak truthfully, for we are members of one body. In your anger, don't sin. There's another one. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. John Piper says a couple of things we can learn from this passage. One is that anger, there is a time to get angry. Anger isn't necessarily wrong. We just saw from Mark that he looked around, that Jesus looked around with anger. Grieved at their hardness of heart. But his anger was mixed. It wasn't a fit of temper. His anger was mixed with grief for what they were going through. So positive anger, we want to call it righteous indignation. Righteous indignation can be a powerful tool in confronting evil and injustice. But even when it's right, it can be dangerous because it's like biological adrenaline. We need it at a time of a moment, but we could not survive a lifetime of it. In your anger, do not sin. So much of our anger is really sinful because it's selfish and self-centered and manipulative. The story is told of the fellow that drove his young son, or his young son went with him as he drove through the streets over to Home Depot or someplace, and uh, there was some road rage going on because of all the idiots on the road, you know, and uh, everything else. And when they got back to the driveway, the little boy looked up at his daddy and he said, Daddy, are you ever the idiot? <laughs> so much of our anger is self-centered, selfish. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Think about that. If you take that really literally, wouldn't you love at that point to be living in Nome, Alaska in the summertime? (laughs) When you go for six months before you see a sunset. Or how you wouldn't want to live at the equator where it's just the same. No, that's not what he's talking. He's talking about keeping short accounts. Deal with it quickly and appropriately. 
Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And don't give the devil a foothold. He's looking for a crack, for an entrance into the relationship. He isn't the source of the anger. Notice Paul doesn't blame the devil for the anger. There's no excuse, the devil made me do it. We did it ourselves. But he can take that fissure in the relationship and establish a beachhead in your life and divide uh, uh, your relationship uh, in the Lord Jesus. He's the opportunist. Or take another one, Paul says. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful, something good with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. I don't have time to develop that. That's a very powerful verse in Scripture. It's, it's a whole Christian philosophy at work. You see, we haven't met the goal when we uh, beat the illegality of stealing to acquire. We haven't met the goal when we've done the legal thing of acquiring for ourselves by work with our hands. That's the standard of the world. The Christian standard is to work with our hands not just to acquire for ourselves but to have that to share with those in need. Perhaps Paul's point at this point is that takers aren't usually givers. Verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit or give grace to those who listen. The NIV has sort of cleaned up the word and translated unwholesome talk. You know what the word means? The word just means rotten. It's used twice in Matthew for rotten fruit. I brought a banana that, believe me, is rotten. It's so far gone, I put it in a plastic bag because I didn't want to have its juice. You know, I guess I don't have to say much more. I won't pull a Tom Evil and toss it out to the, to the audience. But rotten talk. It isn't just profanity. It's talk that tears down. It's what we sometimes call trash talk. That kind of fruit stinks. And if we eat it, we'll surely have halitosis, bad breath. We're more concerned about physical halitosis than we are spiritual halitosis. And we can actually bring offense to the name of Christ with rotten speech. It doesn't nourish. It makes us sick. But rather what we're to be doing is using our speech to build others up. See the other focus building them up according to their needs. Their need of comfort, their need of encouragement, their need of rebuke, according to their need. Not my need to vent on them or to show 
my superiority over them, that it may give grace to them. Did you ever think of your speech as a channel of God's grace to someone else? Put that in contrast with rotten speech, with trash talk. I don't really have to make any comment, do I? You see and you get the picture. It's been so part of the news and our lives over the past few weeks. And these are just some examples. But lest we be superior to them and say we're better than they, Psalm 141 says to a person like me, set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Apart from his grace, that's me. That's why I need that so much. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed to the day of redemption. For a long time I wondered, why is that verse in the middle of this whole list of relationship busters? And it finally dawned on me there's a reason for that word and. It connects it with the verse before, which is about this kind of speech. Now think about this for a minute. We're all diligent about training ourselves in sensitivity to other groups, to other people, to other situations. We don't want to be offensive. But how many of us have given thought to the words that we speak, grieving, bringing great sorrow upon the Holy Spirit? The very one who has placed his seal, his stamp of ownership on us, guaranteeing our redemption at that day. We're more concerned about offending others than we are the Spirit of God. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. His full name is there. And then finally, sort of the the catch-all one. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Bitterness is often just fuel for anger, isn't it? Bitterness is just unresolved anger and evidence of it. Someone has said, and I think wisely so, To maintain a bitter spirit is like drinking poison and hoping somebody else dies. That is a good picture, isn't it? Bitterness, rage, and anger. Before, anger could be good. Here, this anger must be gotten rid of. This is the blow-up anger. Brawling and slander along with every form of malice, every form of wishing evil intent upon someone else, desiring to inflict injury or harm or suffering to another. 
And then the positive side of that is being kind and compassionate. This isn't just about being nice. These are, the, these are two of the traits that God expressed toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Forgiving each other. Forgiving each other. Why does he have to bring that up? And talk about what forgiveness isn't. Forgiveness isn't forgetting. There's no command in the Bible to forget what was done to you. The Bible doesn't ever say that about God. God doesn't forget. He wouldn't be the perfect being that he is. What God does say is that your sin and iniquity I will remember against you no more. I will choose not to bring that up. However much pain that causes me, I release that to the Lord. And that is not going, when you forgive, that's not going to be an issue between you and that person. Now that doesn't mean that you don't long for justice if you've been severely wronged. But the Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay And he'll do a much better job of it than we ever could. And it's not just saying, well, I'll bury the hatchet, but I'll leave the handle out so I can get it when I I need it. Someone has said, a person who will not forgive others is destroying the very bridge over over which he or she may have to walk someday. Forgiving each other. Especially if we try to do that just in the flesh. That's really hard. That's why this comes as a part of the new person that we are in Christ. Because it's reflective of what Christ has done for us. Just as in Christ God forgave us, absorbing all of the penalty and the pain of our sin in himself. But think about this too. Sometimes it's harder not to forgive than to forgive. Because then we live with grieving the Spirit. And then we live with denying the very thing that Christ did for us. Maybe an application to all of this would be to get together with a spouse or an accountability brother or sister or a friend that knows you well, and give each other permission and sit down and go through this list of falsehood and truth, of righteous and unrighteous anger, of stealing versus giving generously, of speech issues, rotten versus edifying or building, the caring of bitterness and all of this. How am I doing? giving each other permission to tell you the truth, to pray for each other along the way. That would be, in my mind at least, one way in which we can walk in integrity, bringing into continuity our conversion with Christ, our our conversion to Christ and our conduct in him. Father, I pray that you might take this, your word, May your voice come way over mine and do that work in my heart 
and in each of our hearts that you desire and design to do this day. And for that, we submit to you with thanksgiving for the privilege in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.